On Thursday, I had a very long conversation with a Mormon friend um, about how God reveals himself to us. Among other things, my Mormon friend insisted that prophets are alive and active today. She insisted that God spoke to her as she prayed. She told me that she hears God's voice. And I couldn't help but wonder if she had in mind the famous phrase that we come upon today in 1 Kings 19. You know the famous phrase I'm, I'm talking about. It's the, the phrase, a still, small voice. In truth, uh, a better translation of the Hebrew phrase is probably something more like a sound of a gentle blowing. It's the New American Standard. Uh, or even as the English Standard Version, the Bibles that we, we use here in, in this church, uh, the sound of a low whisper. As we'll soon discover uh, in our study, something dramatic, something unique, something to never be repeated again is occurring in this famous scene. And it's our great joy, to our great joy, what 1 Kings 19 discloses is that our God is faithful even when His people are faithless. That's good news to each one of us this day, even as we think back on this past week. Maybe there have been times where we lacked faith. Faith where we should have trusted our God to act for our good and for His glory. Our God is faithful, even when we are faithless. That's what we get to think about this morning as we study 1 Kings chapter 19. And let me encourage you to open your Bibles there, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the, the pew racks or in the pews around you, I believe you can find the passage on page 301. 301. Now, as we open God's Word to study 1 Kings 19, we need to remember that, that the books of 1 and 2 Kings were originally one book. And they explain how Israel descended from the golden era of Solomon into the grueling era of the exile, where they were kicked out of the promised land of Canaan under the judgment of God. Uh, this trajectory, we've got to keep this trajectory in mind, even, and perhaps we should say especially, uh, as we're considering this morning's text, 1 Kings 19. As I said, this is the, the famous chapter where Elijah, the prophet Elijah, hears the, the still, small voice of God on Mount Horeb. Now, questions should immediately be coming to our minds. Um, perhaps this one, it, it should be the first one. Why are we hearing about a prophet, Elijah, in a book about kings? Old Testament prophets were related to Old Testament kings. Prophets were God's covenant advocates and prosecutors. God would send his prophets to Israel's kings in order to advocate for covenant faithfulness. The people of Israel, after they were rescued by God from slavery in Egypt, willingly and joyfully entered into a covenant relationship with God. They agreed, they covenanted to live by God's law. God would bestow blessing for living in accordance with this covenant. And Israel corporately asked God to curse them. They asked God to curse them should they fail to keep the covenant. Now, as the Old Testament has unfolded, we have begun to see that Israel actually, Israel can't keep this covenant. God, therefore, would send his prophets to Israel's kings and, and to the nation as a whole to, to advocate for a return to covenant faithfulness. God would send his prophets to Israel's 
kings to warn Israel that, that if they did not repent of their sin, that they would soon face God's judgment and curse, the, the curses that they called down upon themselves for violating the covenant. This is a pivotal chapter, not because Elijah hears the sound of a low whisper, but because as a covenant advocate and prosecutor, Elijah returns to the judge with the verdict. His verdict is this, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. So here's the simple message of 1 Kings 19. Israel is faithless, but God is faithful. We see this message borne out in three sections, and we'll study them under three headings. First, in verses 1 to 8, we see a fleeing prophet and a faithful God. Second, in verses 9 to 18, we see a fickle people and a faithful God. And third, in verses 19 to 21, we meet a future prophet and a faithful God. Well, let's begin our study of God's Word by reading 1 Kings 19, just verses 1 to 8. And here, we're going to see a fleeing prophet and a faithful God. And, and as we read, see if you can see this idea in the text for yourself. 1 Kings uh, 19, let me just read verses 1 to 8. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Well, there in verse 1, we are reminded that we're in the midst of an ongoing saga, one that actually began in chapter 17. There, Elijah, as a prophet, he burst on to the scene and proclaimed to Israel's king, to Ahab, saying, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah promised Ahab a drought. And in that single declaration, Elijah was challenging Ahab and his trust in the false god Baal. King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel had furthered false worship in Israel. They set up altars to worship Baal, the Canaanite storm god. Elijah, pronounced his pronouncement of a drought, revealed that Baal did not actually have power over the rain. But the one true God, Yahweh, did. 
chapter 17, it revealed that Elijah was a man of God who spoke the word of God. And this drought led to the great showdown between Yahweh and Baal on Mount Carmel in chapter 18. Last week, we saw the contest between 450 prophets of Baal and Yahweh's one prophet, Elijah. The prophets of Baal, they, they cried and they cried. They cut themselves and they cried and cried. But Baal did not answer. And then Elijah offered one simple prayer. And Yahweh answered from heaven. Wonderfully, the people of Israel proclaimed the truth that, that Yahweh is God. And they even obeyed the word of Yahweh from Deuteronomy 13 by putting Baal's false prophets to death. And chapter 18 closed with Elijah and Ahab arriving in Jezreel as the heavens opened with Yahweh pouring down rain, as he promised at the beginning of chapter 18. And as chapter 19 opens here, we see that Ahab has to give his wife, the wicked Baal-loving Jezebel, the news of all that's just transpired. Ahab had to break it to her that Yahweh had not only defeated Baal at Mount Carmel, but that Elijah has also put all of Baal's prophets to death. Now notice, you see there, you see there in the text, that Ahab, he's still kind of pointing the finger at, at Elijah. He previously called Elijah the troubler of Israel. It, it's, as if, it's as if Ahab is actually inciting his wife Jezebel to become angry at Elijah. Jezebel, she does what is only natural to someone who loves their idols, even when they've been defeated, Jezebel retaliates, she threatens, and swears to have her revenge. Do you see that there in verse 2? In 2? All right. Uh, in a passive-aggressive um, move, you see this there? She doesn't go. She sends a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You see this? This is a vow. It's an oath. From Jezebel. It's a, a wicked and rash vow. She will have Elijah's life or she'll have to give up her own. There's not enough room in Israel for the both of them. It's either or. And on this score, Jezebel's right, isn't she? There's not enough room in Israel for Baal and for Yahweh. Yahweh himself said through Moses at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods but me. But as verse 2 reveals, Ahab, Jezebel, and Israel are more committed to idolatry than they're committed to covenant faithfulness. Jezebel's dogged determination to put Elijah to death reveals that even though Baal has been defeated at Mount Carmel, the status quo of Baal worship will continue. The defeat at Mount Carmel was only a temporary setback. Ahab and the people of Israel do not challenge Jezebel and Elijah knows it. He sees it. In fact, the phrase that begins verse 3 might be better translated, then he saw it. Elijah saw that Carmel didn't really reset the table for Israel, for Ahab, and certainly not for Jezebel. Israel didn't really repent at Carmel. It was a superficial repentance. It was a momentary retreat. What about you? Have you ever seen or experienced a superficial repentance? Has someone ever sinned against you, apologized and returned to the same old sins? I'm sure you've experienced this. It's much easier to see it in others. 
than it is in ourselves, isn't it? But, but take a moment. Search your heart and your life. Has, has there ever been a, a superficial repentance in your life? Have you ever returned to your sins and idols? Have you ever, like, like Jezebel, defended them? Have you ever threatened those things which threaten to undo your sin and your idols? As we look on Jezebel in Israel, we need to remember that sadly, we too at times have, have offered a superficial repentance. There's a, there's a difference between godly repentance and superficial repentance. And the difference is the work of God in us. We ever need to remember that there is joy in repentance. Spirit-given joy due to Spirit-given power to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus Christ. Let's pray that God would grant us the grace of sincere repentance as opposed to superficial repentance. Since, since the cancer of, of Baal worship was to remain in Israel and since the threat of losing his life was real, we see that Elijah, he flees. Elijah, he, he runs for his life. He runs to Beersheba. Now, what you need to know about this location is that this is where the patriarchs met with God and offered sacrifices to him. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elijah not only goes to Beersheba, but he goes beyond into the wilderness. He leaves the clutches of a murderous, Pharaoh-like ruler and runs into the wilderness as Israel did in the Exodus. What are we to make of Elijah's statement there at the end of verse 4. Do you see it? It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Is Elijah really asking for death? I think the answer is yes and no. Uh, if Elijah wanted to die, he could have presented himself to Jezebel, who would have happily obliged, right? Um, in other words, there, there would no, be no need to, to run. I think that what we need to understand is going on here is, is Elijah is, is lamenting. He's lamenting in extreme and evocative and, I think, truthful language. Uh, great sorrow can often push us to use forceful language to express our, our deep emotions. And what Elijah is lamenting is Israel's commitment to their sin and idolatry. When Elijah says that he's no better than his fathers, he's expressing that just as the prophets before him could not dissuade Israel from pursuing their sin, so he could not dissuade Israel from persisting in sin and idolatry. And all of this, it breaks Elijah's heart. It breaks Elijah's heart to the point that he would rather die than indict Israel as God's covenant prosecutor. Remember, Elijah, he has to go and tell Yahweh that his own people, his own people, the people that he loves, have forsaken God's covenant. Elijah is both fleeing for his life and he is on his way to, to deliver to the divine judge the facts of the case. In fact, the text reveals that this is not, this is not a random wandering. It's not as though Elijah is just kind of running randomly into the wilderness. This is a deliberate journey. This is where we see the faithfulness of God. Elijah, having made his way to Beersheba, 
the place where the patriarchs met with God, is greeted by an angel there in verse 5. We're told that in verse 7, this angel isn't, isn't your ordinary angel, as if any angel is really ordinary, right? But this is the angel of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is Yahweh himself. This is what's known as a theophany, a visible appearance of Yahweh, of God himself. Here, God is meeting his prophet and meeting the needs of his prophet all at the same time. And there's something else that's interesting about the place of Elijah's arrival. There's a, a broom tree. Right? The author mentions it twice, so he wants us to take notice of it. This tree, a broom tree, is a small tree. It's actually uh, more like a desert shrub. You could even call it a large bush. So we have an angel of the Lord meeting Yahweh at a bush in the wilderness. And this should remind you of Moses. Uh, do you remember where he received his call? It was by a well-lit bush in the wilderness. Yahweh is treating Elijah like Moses. So we're going to see some continued parallels between Moses and Elijah in the whole of this chapter. In other words, in answer to Elijah's statement, right, I am no better than my father's, Yahweh is saying, through his care, his faithful care for his prophet, you're ministering in the line of the patriarchs and Moses. And the implication is, is that if God has dealt faithfully with the patriarchs and with Moses, and he has, then he will deal faithfully with Elijah. The Lord's answer to Elijah's request to lay aside his life and to lay aside his labor as a prophet was a simple, no, I, I'm not going to let you die and leave your prophetic duties behind. I'm going to sustain you. The Lord is faithful to his prophet, feeding him as he fed him in the past. Back in, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah asked the widow to feed him a cake. And what does the angel feed him with here? You see that there in verse 5? A cake. Uh, one bloke called this the original angel food cake. Um, the Lord is, is graciously reminding Elijah of his faithfulness to him in the past, even while being faithful to sustain his life in the present. Are you, are you picking up all of the clues that the author is putting down? Are you seeing the, the parallels between Elijah and Moses? Remember, Moses was the prophet who mediated the covenant between Israel and God at Mount Sinai. And, and what, is, what is Elijah's destination according to verse 8? It's Horeb, the mountain of God. Does anybody know the other name? This is, congregational participation is allowed. Anybody know the other name for Horeb in the Old Testament? Sinai, that's right. So he's headed back to Mount Sinai, the place where God gave his covenant through Moses. Again, verses 7 and 8, they tell us that Elijah's journey is not characterized by a drifting from one place to the next, but a deliberate path. The angel strengthens Elijah for 40 days and 40 nights. And again, right, that recalls Moses and his time with God on Mount Sinai, his 40 days and 40 nights. God was faithful to Moses and his calling as a, as a covenant advocate. And he's going to be faithful to Elijah. I wonder, as you look back on your own life journey, I wonder if you can see God's faithfulness to you each step of the way. Can you see God's provision? P perhaps you cannot presently see God's purpose. Perhaps you cannot presently see the path ahead. But can you see God's provision in the past? Can you look back and see how He's led? How He's led you and how He's fed you? How He's cared for you?
And can you trust Him for the hazy days ahead? God has been faithful to you, hasn't He? Even when you've been afraid, perhaps especially when you've been afraid, God has been faithful. Brothers and sisters, let's remember this in the days of our strength, for we're going to need it in the days of our weakness. Well, having considered the fleeing prophet and the faithfulness of God, let's turn and consider our second point. A fickle people. A fickle people and a faithful God. And as we do, let's begin by reading 1 Kings um, 19, verses 9 and 10. Just verses 9 and 10 for now. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. and He said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. You see, these verses, they announce Elijah's arrival at Horeb, Mount Sinai. And his answer to Yahweh's question. This is an exchange that will be repeated a little bit later in verses 13 and 14, which which underscores its importance of what Elijah is communicating. Some have understood Yahweh's question, God's question there, as accusative, right? As though Elijah shouldn't be there at Horeb. What what are you doing here, Elijah? Some people have understood the question that way. I think that may be a misguided reading. After all, it was the angel of the Lord himself Yahweh himself in verse 7, right? Who invited Elijah to go on this 40-day and 40-night journey. And he supplied Elijah with food to sustain him. Elijah is here at the mountain of God, at the invitation of God. He has been treated as Moses has been treated. Welcome to God's mountain. Elijah is not out of place, but in the right place. The place where the covenant between God and Israel was formed. And now... The place where it will be announced that the covenant, sadly, has been forsaken. In verse 9, we're told that Elijah came to a cave. According to Hebrew scholars, apparently the best translation of that phrase would read like this. There he came to the cave and lodged in it. In other words, Elijah came to a specific cave. The same cave or the same cleft of the rock that Moses came to. When God revealed himself in Exodus uh, chapters 33 and 34. Now, uh, do do we remember our our Sunday school stories? You remember your your Bible stories? What was happening in Exodus 32, 33, and 34? What was Moses speaking to Yahweh about? Well, Israel had just worshipped an idol, the golden calf. Israel had just broken the covenant. And Moses was there on the mountain talking to God about it. And what has Israel been doing in the book of Kings? They've been worshiping idols. And Elijah is on the same mountain talking to God about it. Moreover, just as Yahweh revealed himself in his covenant faithfulness to Moses, so he's also about to reveal himself to Elijah. More on that in a moment. What we have here in verses 9 and 10 is something akin to Israel's arraignment or their indictment. What we'll get in verses 13 and 14 is the actual hearing of the case followed by God's judgment on the matter. When we read the Lord's question there in verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
what we are reading is Yahweh's invitation for Elijah to initially announce the charges against Israel. Elijah begins by announcing his prophetic faithfulness. He has been jealous or zealous for the covenant Lord. Then Elijah announces Israel's fickleness or Israel's faithlessness. They have forsaken the covenant. And then he just keeps going, listing it on. They've thrown down Yahweh's altars and killed Yahweh's prophets with a sword. Chapter 18 revealed all of this to us. But the significance of this is that it reveals Israel has rejected the covenant of Yahweh. And in doing so, they have, in the words of one scholar, rejected the Lord, His name, person, promises, blessings, gift of life, and love. You see, rejecting Yahweh's covenant is rejecting Him. In throwing down Yahweh's altars, they've rejected Yahweh's worship. In killing Yahweh's prophets, they have sought to silence Yahweh's voice. Elijah concludes his prophetic indictment by telling Yahweh that he's the only one left. Now, now typically, there's an immediate objection to this last statement from Elijah. As an attentive reader, you're, you're possibly thinking to yourself, come on, Elijah, you're a bit melodramatic, right? We all know that Obadiah was a prophet of God. We met him in the last chapter. Uh, what is more, we also know that Obadiah, he saved a hundred prophets. He hid them in caves in order to escape Jezebel's wrath. You're not really the only one left. Don't exaggerate. Well, might I suggest to you that God's authorized prophet is telling the truth? Perhaps we should see things from Elijah's perspective. Uh, Elijah really has been all alone in this fight against Baal worship in Israel. He was the only praying prophet on Carmel. Maybe he wasn't the last in total number, but he was the only one standing against Ahab, Jezebel, and the prophets of Baal. That has at least been his experience. And if we read this narrative carefully, nowhere does the God of truth challenge Elijah on that point. And as we're about to find out, Yahweh agrees with Elijah's indictment. Yahweh agrees with Elijah's assessment of the situation. We know this because Yahweh calls down the sword of judgment on Israel. Read 1 Kings 19, verses 11 through 14. And just note that this is where we get the next step in the judicial process, where Israel is kind of formally put on trial. Verse 11. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. In verse 11, Elijah is instructed to go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Here, Elijah is formally invited to Yahweh's court. It is as if the judge 
having heard the indictment, recognizes that this is a case he must adjudicate. And so he calls the court into session. And what's, what's one of the last things that happens before a trial begins? The judge enters the courtroom. The great and strong wind, the earthquake, and the fire are all divine and dramatic phenomenological forerunners to Yahweh's actual appearance and arrival. These unsettling phenomenological occurrences tell us the judge is coming to court for judgment, but that he hasn't yet arrived. Because crucially, we're told that Yahweh was not in any of them. The signal of Yahweh's arrival, or better yet, that which allows Elijah to sense that Yahweh had arrived was, verse 12, the sound of a low whisper. Here, we must be careful to recognize that what is occurring is irregular. This is a unique event in redemptive history where God's appointed prophet is delivering the verdict upon Israel of they've abandoned the covenant. This is not the ordinary way that Yahweh speaks to his creatures. Really, the last time he did this was with Moses. This is rare. And so we should be cautious in thinking that this is how Yahweh speaks to us. That religious stray thought might not be God speaking to us. Note, too, the very paradox of this sound of a low whisper. Whispers are, are hard enough to make out in and of themselves. Low whispers, even harder. Elijah only hears the sound of a low whisper. And here we're not told that Yahweh was in that sound either. This simply signals to Elijah that Yahweh is present. When Elijah finally needs to hear and respond to Yahweh, the judge's voice is clear beyond all doubt. In that moment, verses 13 and 14, we get the same question and answer engagement that we received earlier in verses 9 and 10. Here the charges previously announced are formally submitted to the judge for judgment. And Elijah seems to pick up on the fact that he is encountering Yahweh as Moses did so many years before. Elijah covers his face. He veils his face in the presence of the judge. Having been formally invited into the judge's presence, Elijah outlines his case. The charges remain the same. Elijah has been faithful. Israel has been fickle. They've been limping between Baal and Yahweh, which means they've abandoned or forsaken Yahweh's covenant. What will Yahweh do? What will God's judgment be? How will he respond to this covenant complaint from his covenant advocate and prosecutor? What we see in verses 15 to 18 is that Yahweh sides with his prophet. He agrees with Elijah. Israel does deserve the sword of judgment. Yahweh announces means and men who will carry out his judgment. And thankfully, God purposes to preserve a remnant so that he may fulfill and remain faithful to his promises to raise up a seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, a priest like Melchizedek, a king from the line of David, and a prophet like Moses and Elijah. Take a look at verses 15 to 18 now. 1 Kings 19, verses 15 to 18. And the Lord said to him, Go, Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. 
and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehel Loha, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. These verses are a wonderful display of God's mercy, of his faithfulness, even in the midst of judgment. We see this even in the geography. Elijah is told to go back to Israel. That is his final destination. But note that there's a route along the way. Elijah must go through, must first go through Damascus. And this route is at least part of the route that Moses led Israel through on their way to the promised land. Along the way, Elijah is to anoint men whom God will use as means to judge his people. Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha will all be used by God to judge and chastise the people of Israel for their fickleness, for, for their fickleness toward God and for their faithfulness to his covenant. Each of these men will successively prosecute God's judgment. And if anyone escapes, the next man in line will see to it that they're put to death. God's judgment will be total and complete. But verse 18 is full of hope, isn't it? Full of hope and the faithfulness of God. God will eradicate the fickle and the faithless in Israel, but He will preserve the faithful. He will preserve 7,000 in Israel. Now, some have taken this as, as, proof, as God's proof to Elijah that his claims were exaggerated. Uh, like this perspective actually misses the point. And in truth, the fact that there were only 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal underscores that actually Elijah was precisely right. On the whole, the nation was fickle and faithless. They had forsaken the covenant. We, we might be inclined to think that 7,000 is a large number, but really it's not. As we think about this 7,000 number, we should not think, wow, look at how many people remain faithful to Yahweh. Instead, we should think how dreadful that only 7,000 remain faithful to God. This should be a nation of millions of faithful followers ever expanding and increasing in its witness to God's wonderful love. But it's about to be reduced. This was a nation of maybe two million people coming up out of Egypt and entering into the promised land. Only 7,000? You see, not all Israel are really Israel. Here we are reminded that God will protect preserve and prosper his people. When we are tempted to think that the number in Christ church is small, and indeed it might be very small, the true church may be considerably smaller than the publicly visible church. Just as the spiritual Israelites were considerably smaller than the physical Israelites in Elijah's day. Even then, we must remember this, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church. We can trust God to triumph. But His triumph might be through the small and the weak. No matter how Jesus' church seems to be given to the gods of this age, we can trust that Jesus will preserve a faithful remnant and will be all to His doing and His glory. 
our aim as individual believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is to make our calling and election sure, to use the words of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Our calling is to hold fast to our confidence, to hold fast to Jesus Christ. Hold on to Him, for He will certainly hold on to all the Father has given to Him. God's faithfulness does not stop at the preservation of a small number of His people. He also purposes to preserve Elijah's prophetic ministry through raising up another prophet like him. And thus we meet Elijah, Elisha in the text. Man, I'm going to get those two names going back and forth. God will preserve the ministry of the prophetic word. And this is a wonderful display of the faithfulness of God. One of the most sobering judgments of God is the removal of his word. God's word brings light and life. And in verse 16, God promises to extend Elijah's prophetic ministry through Elisha. All of this points to a greater display of God's faithfulness in the days to come. On a mountain, Moses was the prophet who received God's covenant. On a mountain, Elijah was the prophet who declared Israel could not keep God's covenant. And in the New Testament, Moses and Elijah come together on a mountain. In the New Testament, Moses and Elijah come together on a mountain for a meeting with Jesus. There, Jesus is transfigured before them. He is the prophet to whom their prophetic ministry pointed. And God the Father announced from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In the Gospels, we learn that Jesus is not just some prophet. He's not John the Baptist. He's not Moses. He's not Elijah. He is the one to whom they point. Jesus is the preeminent prophet, the prophet par excellence. Jesus is the beloved Son of God, the one whom the Father had chosen from eternity past to accomplish the purposes of redemption, to bring the word of love and salvation for sinners like you and me. We can't fail to remember how this was brought out in Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, where we read, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. According to the Father, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what this means is that Jesus is to be listened to. This, this too was predicted by none other than the man standing on that mountain with Jesus, Moses. Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, said this, The Lord your God, he's speaking to the people of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as Israel was called to listen to Moses and to Elijah, so God's people today are to listen to Jesus. He is the prophet who kept the Mosaic Covenant. He lived a fully obedient and righteous life as the new Adam, as the new Israel. He is the prophet who took the judgment God's people deserve for forsaking God. On the cross, he, he bore the sword of God's wrath against sin. He endured the wages of sin as he was put to death. He is the prophet who has announced salvation to all who believe in him. And after his resurrection of the grave, he commissioned his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to sincerely turn from your sin and to place your faith 
in Jesus Christ. We have all been made in God's image, made to love, worship, and serve Him only. We've been made to live in covenant with God. But like our first parents, like Adam and Eve, and like Israel, we have forsaken God. We have all sinned against God by deciding to live our own way and love ourselves more than Him. Because of our sin, we all deserve to be judged by God, just as Israel was judged by God. We're guilty like Israel. And because we've sinned against the eternal and holy God, we deserve to face His holy and eternal wrath against our sin. But the good news of the Bible is that there was another mountain. There was the Mount of Transfiguration. There was the Mount of Calvary. Believe that the Lord Jesus Christ lived the life that you have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Believe that Jesus died the death that you deserve. Bearing in His body on the cross God's just holy and eternal wrath against your sin. And believe that Jesus was raised from the grave on the third day, showing us God's joyful acceptance of the sacrifice of His Son for our sin. Believe that Jesus did this so that we might be forgiven and accepted by God. Believe that Jesus is God's ultimate prophet, speaking to us a word of love and salvation. As you think about Moses' mountaintop experience in Exodus chapters 32 through 34 and Elijah's mountaintop experience here in Exodus, sorry, in 1 Kings 19, remember that it points forward to the Mount of Transfiguration and our hope in God's greatest prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate display of God's faithfulness. We've seen a fleeing prophet and a fickle people. We should turn then and consider our third point, a future prophet and a faithful God. Please follow along as I read 1 Kings 19, verses 19 to 21. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother. And then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen, and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose, and went after Elijah, and assisted him. Well, these verses briefly communicate Elisha's call to follow Elijah. They begin with, finding and they end with following they're rather straightforward aren't they Elisha is busy at work plowing in the field and as Elijah passes by me he throws his cloak on Elisha and apparently Elijah just keeps going because Elisha leaves the oxen and runs after Elijah this uh, kind of on first read it's a strange custom to us isn't it but Elisha knew exactly what this meant it meant that he had to follow Elijah he had just received the cloak that Elijah had covered his face with at Mount Sinai, Horeb, when Elijah met the Lord. And Elisha knows that he must follow Elijah. And, and in reading a passage like this, we, we want to ask questions like, how did Elisha know that he had to follow Elijah? But in truth, the author, he's not really focused on that question, is he? What is his focus? His focus is on Elisha's call 
in fulfillment of what Yahweh told Elijah in the preceding verses, right? This is God being faithful to his promises of raising up a prophet. His focus is on Elisha considering the call of Yahweh as a duty and a loyalty higher and stronger than even a duty to loyalty and family. His focus is upon his family's recognition and rejoicing that Elisha has been called. And his focus is on the immediacy and fulfillment of Elisha's obedience. After Elisha receives the cloak of Elijah, he says, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Here, Elisha is requesting that he be afforded the opportunity to go back, say goodbye to his mother and father, and observe that the purpose of his going back to his mother and father is to tell them that he's been called by God. Following this call means leaving them behind. Elisha must, no doubt, count the cost. He does. And he burns the yoke that had previously held his oxen that he had been plowing with. You see this? Elisha is committed to this commission. And, this, and, and not keeping the yoke, he's not keeping that around as kind of like a, a backup. This is my fallback plan if, if this new vocation doesn't go well. This call reminds us of every Christian's call according to Jesus. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, our Savior said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The question that we all must ponder is whether Jesus is our greater love. Will we, like Elisha and like Jesus' disciples, leave everything and follow him? Are we willing to leave everything behind and follow Him? You'll see there, verse 20, that Elijah grants Elisha permission. That's the thrust of the verse. There appears to be a celebration of Elisha's new calling by Elisha and his family. They sacrifice the oxen and feast. But even this celebration has an end. And Elijah, Elisha soon sets out to go and serve Elijah. Elisha will soon serve as a prophet of God, but not before he serves the prophet. Did you catch that? Elisha doesn't immediately ascend to the office of prophet. Instead, he learns by following, assisting, and serving. At the end of verse 21, we read, He arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. He does the humble work first. The way up is down. That's what we're looking for in men who serve as elders. We're looking for men who will get down on the floor of the nursery to teach the little ones before they get up on the platform to teach the bigger ones. In some sense, we're looking for men who will peg themselves near an elder, like Elisha did with Elijah. Follow and imitate his way of life. Learn how to serve the Lord. Learn how to prioritize the church family even by teaching his own family to engraft themselves into the larger church family. Learn from his teaching and then be recognized for the office. Elisha recognized that love for family was a love, but it was a love to be lower than love for the Lord. Young people, you need to know this too. Your highest goal in life is not to please your parents. It is to please the Lord. And He is pleased when you obey your parents, certainly. But that is not your highest goal in life. 
You live to please the Lord. Similarly, a great temptation for your age and station is in life is to live to please your peers. But your calling is greater still. You are called to love and please the Lord Jesus, even if your friends and family do not approve. There is one thing that should challenge all of us. Elisha was committed to this call. Later this evening, our brother uh, Dennis Garcia will help us to reflect on Luke chapter 9, verse 62, where Jesus says, No one puts his, who, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. From this point forward, Elisha is not looking back. He's looking forward and he is plowing ahead. Dear Christian, if you've given up everything to follow the Lord Jesus, then keep looking ahead. Keep marching forward. Keep plowing. God in His faithfulness will sustain you to the end. And as you keep plowing and pressing ahead, remember Jesus' faithfulness. Remember that Jesus was obedient and faithful unto and through death. Remember that Jesus is faithful to us even now. And this is where we conclude. In 1 Kings 19, it teaches us that Israel is faithless, but God is faithful. Sadly, through a fleeing prophet, we see that Israel is committed to her sin. Still, God remains faithful to Elijah by feeding and leading him to Horeb. Elijah announces the covenant verdict. Israel is fickle, and they have forsaken God's covenant. Yet even here, God shows His great faithfulness by preserving a remnant and promising a future prophet. This great mountaintop experience pointed to another mountaintop, where Jesus would be the, revealed to be the prophet to which Moses and Elijah pointed. More immediately, the chapter closed revealing God's faithfulness and leading Elijah to find Elisha, the prophet who would follow in Elijah's footsteps. From beginning to end, Israel has proved faithless. But God has proved faithful, and that is our hope. As we look back on 1 Kings 19 and look forward to the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that we do not stand before God in the confidence of our faithfulness. For the truth is, is that far too often, far too often we have been faithless. We stand before the Lord. We come to Him and we come to His table because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Jesus stood on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus stood on the Mount Calvary. And one day soon, our faithful prophet, priest, and king will stand on Mount Zion and will call us home to feast with him and the new heavens and the new earth. He is promised and he is faithful. Let's pray together.